What's up, friends? I'm your host, Amanda Smith, and welcome to the Girl Gang Podcast, the show where I chat with inspiring women about business, life's challenges, and building community, because we all need it. If you need a girl gang, this podcast is for you. Welcome to this episode of the Girl Gang Podcast. It is finally April. Happy April Fool's Day. Today, we have an amazing, amazing woman. And this episode is for, well, really everybody, but especially if you have a teacher in your life, an educator, or if you are a teacher, share this like hotcakes. Share it with your teacher friends. Share it with a teacher you know, an ex-teacher, a principal, counselor, anybody that works in the education and school systems is going to want to hear this because we have Dr. D on the podcast today. She is going to tell you all about herself. She is a top-selling author. I bought her book about culture-based learning. I mean, I was a teacher for seven years, and I still want to know this information as a leader as well, but I also bought the book for my husband, who's now a teacher. You guys, share this around. Tag Teachers pay teachers on Instagram. Tag other teacher influencers on social media. They need to hear this episode. The classroom is so different here in 2021 than it was in the past. So dig into this episode, share it with a teacher, and let's get our learning on. All right, Dr. D, welcome to the Girl Gang Podcast. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. How are you? So good. So good. Well, I'm so glad to have you on the show today. I love when we get to bring someone on the show that is also was or at one point in the educational world uh, for myself, having been a teacher, because if you're not a teacher, you kind of don't get it, (laughs) right? (laughs) I mean, you might understand a little if your parents were teachers or things like that, but really excited to get into this topic of education and leadership and just so many different things. But for those who don't know... Tell us all about your amazing self and what you do. Absolutely. No problem. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you all so much for listening in. And I'm super excited to share about who I am. I'm Dr. Bell Williams. I am an educational consultant, leadership development trainer, as well as culture and diversity consultant. And so I'm super excited to do the work that I do because I've actually been doing it all of my career. I spent almost 20 years, this year's my 19th year um, in the education field. I, I was in the field uh, K-12 for 14 years. And the last five of those years, I have spent um, as a higher ed college professor. And so I've seen education from the perspective of almost every paradigm um, that you can imagine from, you know, being in the classroom as a classroom teacher to uh, being an educational leader, leader as an uh, assistant principal and dean of students being a parent liaison where I'm working specifically with the community, um, as well as, you know, of course, a college professor where we're then able to see how K-12 education has prepared students to learn and take the learning to the next level. So I've seen education from so many different uh, paradigms. And as an educational leader, I am also, you know, I work in, in the policy aspect because I have a doctorate degree in educational leadership policy and administration which then positioned me to be able to look at policy decisions and how those decisions are affecting our teachers, how they are affecting the way that our students are learning. And also, you know, how how does it affect families, um, parents uh, of those students? And of course, um, looking at graduation rates and how um, the education system is affecting our community overall. And so those are all the different perspectives of of which I lead of which I share in the education realm. I am a transformational leader. So everything that I do, even a leadership training, um, it's, it's going to cause or ask for or invoke transformation. And so that's, you know, particularly the, how much, you know, how I pretty much like to paint myself, you know, as a leader, because I really like to you know, see change, you know, in, in our communities and our societies. And so I've been in the field, again, like I said, for almost 20 years, I have a bachelor's in professional English, a master's in education uh, with a focus on curriculum and instruction. I also have an educational specialist degree in administration and leadership, and of course, a doctoral degree in educational leadership policy and administration. I am in the famously hot city of Columbia, South Carolina, which is the capital of South Carolina. And so I get to do some amazing work, you know, in the city. I'm a part of so many amazing organizations 
um, organizational bodies that pretty much positions me to continue to do the work uh, that I do because I always tell people we cannot do this work by ourselves, no matter how much we know, um, no matter how much we position ourselves as an expert, it's about collectively working together so that we can mobilize our community. So that's a little bit about me. I'm an only child. I'm married and I have a Yorkie poodle named Jordan and I like to travel and, and read. Like That's what I do in my spare time. But those are some of the aspects about me. I am a published author. Yes. I um, wrote a book, Culture Focused Teaching, The Simple mm-hmm. System. Uh, to escape classroom management disaster and fall in love with teaching again. I have a copy of that book right here. Uh, and I'm super excited about that. Uh, 2020, I released the book and within a week of releasing, I became a best-selling author on Amazon. Yeah, you um, did. Yep. And in October of 2020, I was given the award by the African American History and Genealogy Society. It's an international book award uh, for my work in the education, academic, nonfiction uh, arena, specifically as it relates to culture. So right now, if you're listening, everybody stop, send this podcast to a teacher that you know and love, and if you care about them at all, because we're about to get into some really good stuff. Also, open your Amazon app and just go ahead and drop her book in your cart while you're at it. I really... I um. You know, I think, you know what? I think I'm going to buy your book for my husband. He just became a teacher. I think we talked about this, but it's his first year, right? And he is a non-traditional route. And so that's so different. But um, so I, w- I want to kind of take it back. I really like to get to know the person too behind everything that you just explained. Because we all start somewhere. Our background, our family history, our, you know, how we were brought up. So I would love to hear just some snippets of your background that led to the career that you have now. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite things to talk about, actually, Amanda. Like, I really love to talk about my background because it's really the foundation of why I am who I am today. I think that's the um, case for a lot of people, which is why absolutely, I Absolutely, right? So I was raised in a non-traditional fashion. My grandparents on my father's side began raising me at nine months old. And um, my grandmother was an educator and community advocate. She was like the mother of the community, our small community. I'm from Norway, South Carolina, and Orangeburg County um, in South Carolina. It's a very small town. Grandfather was a farmer, but before that, he was a U.S. Navy veteran. Um, and after, you know, World War II, coming back home, deciding to settle in, raising, you know, family, bought a lot of land. And so my dad took on, you know, the work of my Uh, grandfather, he became a farmer and also a part of the family business, which um, they all what's called, you know, concrete masonry. So that's what they did, bricklayers. And so they always did a lot of uh, physical labor. So with that background, my grandmother being an educator, being so involved in the community, my grandmother was a member of the NAACP, uh, many of the uh, local organizations that pretty much were community oriented. My grandmother was a part of it. And because she was a part of it and she raised me, I was at every meeting, even as a young child, at every meeting, not really even understanding what was happening, but was dragged to all of these meetings because I had to go with my grandmother. And so, um, and that was like really the the start of the genesis of my interest in, you know, politics and community uh, orientation and, and as it relates to education. I've always been fond of learning. I'm a lifelong learner. I've always done pretty well in school, um, even though I had a couple challenges along the way. Um, I remember the impact of my teacher. I remember the impact of those who supported me when I had certain learning challenges along the way. I remember those who were not as supportive during my challenges, you know, along the way. So all of those things are embedded in our fiber. And so because of all of that, because of my upbringing, being raised in a small town in a large family, though I'm an only child being raised by my grandparents and her children, I was exposed to what family really looks like and how we're supposed to look out for each other and how we're supposed to help each other. So all of that, if you couple all of that, that is really what makes me who I am. I'm very family oriented. I believe in the community um, network. I believe in the uh, old African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child because that's I'm literally a product of a village um, raising me. And so that's my background. And that's pretty much, you know, what sets me up to, you know, do the work that I'm doing today. That's incredible. I, I absolutely, I love hearing about people's 
backstories because I think it's easy to see like what they have going on on Instagram right now or hearing them on Clubhouse or listen, you know, listening to a podcast episode. But I love, I don't know if you listen to Dak Shepard's podcast, Armchair Expert, but he, he really goes and digs deep into the person's background and their life. And, um, I kind of want to do that more, but so let's just jump right into education. And how long were you in the classroom? I was in the classroom for 14 years and, and I, and I couple my work as an assistant principal and Dean of students right. along with those years, mm-hmm. because I still spent time in the yeah, classroom. You did. <laughs> and when you are a transformational leader, you should, because yeah. you want to be visible to your educators, you know, even if you are serving in a role of leadership within the school. So I spent 14 years in the K-12 yeah. classroom. And then, uh, like I said, the last five or so have been in um, the higher ed classroom. What was this just random question? What was your favorite grade to teach? My favorite grade is 12th grade. It's my favorite grade. I figured it was older kids. I don't know why, but. <laughs> and I was a high school teacher for those 14 years. I did try my stint because I'm K-12 certified, but I, I, I tried my stint, I call it, at, at elementary, and I spent six months. It might have been four and a half. It might have been a full six in a third grade classroom, and I said, take me back to high Get me out of here. Right now. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, if you, you gotta, I was the opposite. I went in and I taught junior high and high school, um, Choir and music theory first, right off the bat, as a fresh 21, 22 year old. And then I was like, mm, I want some little kids. I want to be a little bit like more, like they were too close to my age, also. <laughs> and I looked like them and all those things. So, okay. So these days, education, people are hearing a lot of different things about education, especially let, let's say if you're not an educator, if you're not in the teaching world and you're hearing, wow, our teachers need to get paid more. And of course, with the pandemic, it's, you know, highlighted even more how much we do, what it is, our role is, and just how difficult, but also the special type of person that it takes to be an educator in a school. And of course, my my experience has only been in public school. Also, my experience was exclusively in Title I, very at-risk schools where white people were the minority. I was the minority as an adult. And it actually, and I think we could talk about this later too, as it, as it pertains to business too, but I, you learn so much when you are in a full-time job or when in your previous careers, once you look back. You know, now if you're, if you're a business owner or you're doing this other thing, you, you should be learning from your other jobs. So anyway, I digress, but how is education now changing now and why are we losing teachers left and right? Myself included. Understand. I think that the question actually, um, you know, just actually should be is why is education always changing? Mm, Um, And the reason why I say that is because every time we change federal administration, there's a new educational agenda. Every time there is a new thought process or a new theory, there's a change in education. And so, you know, not to say that it shouldn't change. I mean, I think we should always be open to change. However, when a system doesn't have any stability, Stability. It creates havoc on those who are trying to implement that system. So education is literally always changing because we are always going through an administration change. And once that, you know, president uh, elects a new secretary of education or a new person in that position, then the agenda becomes something different. And so, okay, now we got to shift and move and do all these different things. And I honestly think for one, That is a a reason why, you know, we are losing a lot of teachers and just a lot of people, period, you know, in the field of education because it's so unstable. And it's and for for the the persons who actually uh, feel the brunt of this are children. And because as adults, we are taught to solve problems. And if we have been hired to go into a classroom to help solve a problem, to make it better for another child, and we can't do that, 
then what we've been hired to do, we're no longer able to. And there is a sense, nobody goes into a job without a sense of feeling fulfilled. Right. And so if I can't do the job that I've been hired to do, then I'm not getting that fulfillment. My cup is not being poured into. And I'm actually going in depleted and I'm leaving depleted. It's almost impossible. It's impossible. So I'm really not offering the children anything outside of a script. If it's a curriculum or a book or something that I'm utilizing to to teach, I'm not offering them anything outside of a script because I can't give them my ingenuity. I can't give them my creativity because I'm depleted. I don't have anything left. I'm going into meetings about meetings. I'm going into trainings about trainings. (laughs) to implement something that may or may not work with the population of students that I serve. You said it best. I've always worked in Title I uh, schools or those schools that, you know, were were considered to be at risk or challenging. As a matter of fact, my route to education was the alternative route. I went through a program Mm -hmm. here in South Carolina that's called PACE. It's a program for alternative certification in education. And so I didn't go through a traditional uh, program in college. I tried to avoid education at all costs during that time. I did at the um, beginning too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because my grandmother was an educator. I had family members that were educators. You know, I had my experiences from being a student, you know, through the education system, especially here in South Carolina. So I was trying to avoid that with all costs. But I knew, I knew deep down inside, I was going to educate. I was going to lead. I was going to teach. I just didn't want to do it from the classroom. But at that time, I didn't have a blueprint as far as what that looked like up until now. So, you know, what I do as an entrepreneur, we'll get to that, makes sense with my route that I had to take through education. Um, so, again, teachers are leaving because they don't feel supported. But the support is not there because they're working in a system that's unstable. And when you don't have stability, you don't have a solid foundation, you're going to keep, you're going to have retention issues. You're going to have people going in and out. They're going to be cracks. They're going to be, you know, things that just fall apart because the foundation of education in our country has not been stable. Not for a long time. No. Not for a very, very long time. And honestly, I'll be very honest with you, um, because of my background in, in research and studies, it's never been a stable yeah, system in the United States of America in our education system. I'm actually getting ready to uh, do a, a podcast in about two weeks to talk about that very thing with with one of the local community leaders uh, to talk about the instability of education since its onset uh, because of the background of knowing like every like I said every administration and before there was change in administration and we had a secretary of education when we start looking back into the history of education in the United States. We start talking about the one room schoolhouses. Of course, we've got to talk about segregation and all mm-hmm. of So there's never been stability no. for it to work for every child from every background. It's felt like, it's like you're building a house or pouring concrete on the sidewalk. Every time you get close to letting it dry, someone steps in it Absolutely. and you got to start over. Absolutely. And it's, it's the never ending construction zone that you hate to go down on whatever highway, you know, man, I'm really going to try to make this episode, not a long, (laughs) a long ass episode, but I think one of the most frustrating things, you know, and you could probably attest to this too, obviously as a teacher in the classroom is why can our leadership, our principals, our superintendent, not just, let's just cut the crap. Can we just be honest about the fact that things are changing again? We don't necessarily want them to. And here's how we can adapt or knowing, are they going to advocate for us? That's the the number one thing. I think um, I was at a school where our turnover rate for, for classroom teachers was over 50% every year for the last, uh, at least I was there for four years, pretty much every year I was there. And I was one of those teachers that left in the middle of the school year because I was like, I am out. I have to go. Um, And I was actually super nice. I let them know I I was leaving in December in September because I wanted to be super nice and, you know, didn't want to leave them hanging. But why can't we just all acknowledge, hey, this is what's happening? Because I think what what I have seen from leadership is they're pretending like everything is okay. They're pretending like Oh, we got this. Like, you're amazing. We're going to bring you some M&Ms at this meeting and like let you leave five minutes early and give you some you time. 
and like you you've got it please you know and i i think what we got really tired what people are teachers are getting really tired of is when leadership is trying to play a game with us and not being honest with us about the bs that's going on you know it really gets me fired up in some type of way so <laughs> i believe it's important for school leaders to have mandatory school climate and culture training and a lot of times they don't have that and sometimes they do and you know they are thinking about security and what i mean by that is the security of their own jobs and if they just about to say that exactly they move according to their superior and whatever their superior says should be happening mm-hmm. outside of their own ability to be autonomous in leading the school because schools are supposed to be set up where this the principal is the ceo of that school and they're supposed yeah. to set the tone uh for the climate and culture and the team building infrastructure for that school mm-hmm. if a principal doesn't have those leadership skills and that training one that's not going to happen mm-hmm. two if that principal has decided that their security as it relates to their job and their pay matters more than the infrastructure of their schools, then you're going to get a lot of that backlash and frustration. Or if they want to make changes, but they have a direct supervisor that is saying, this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to see happen. And this was, this is what has to happen. Or I'll find somebody who can make it happen. Mm -hmm. And so again, it, it plays on the job security because everybody who's in a, working position wants their job and there's no excuse for any of it because at the end of the day the people who hurt the most even though the educators are suffering it's the children it's the kids that are hurting the most because again educators are depleted and they can't give what they don't have and i I shared that to to, and i want to give an example of of what i mean by that about this bucket mentality of downpour Mm -hmm. of instruction you may have a, I'll take Title I schools. We both have the experience in that. And there may be some listeners who have experience in working with Title I schools or at-risk schools where the population, as you know, you mentioned, where it's majority Black and Brown students. And we have, a, a, a let's say you have a principal in that position that is saying, hey, because of the concerns that our teachers are having and because of the concerns that other students and their parents are having, we need to begin to look at How are we going to counteract misbehavior from students without ostracizing them from the school and making them a product of society by through suspension and different measures? Let's let's come up with something creative, whether it's a day school program where it's on a different site. Uh, you know, of the school district, or do we need to create an alternative system, you know, for them? Uh, what can we do? And the supervisor, that superintendent, that that person that's over the principals of the district may say, hey, we have nothing else. You have to suspend them. You have to get rid of them out of the school. So you now have this sort of difference of ideology of how to handle the situation. However, at the end of the day, if there's no solution, that principal has to do exactly what their superior tells them to do. Or, you know, you may have someone that, you know, wants to do a suspension. Um, however, if you know anything about suspension rates and, you know, funding, yep. each time a child is out of school and out of the classroom, the school loses money on money. those Title I funds. So that's why sometimes teachers are frustrated about it's why. One of the most frustrating thing. Right. <laughs> this child is wreaking havoc in my class. And they can, they're never suspended or they're always coming back to the class. Well, that principal has subscribed to the ideology that if we, you know, put them out of school, then we're going to lose the money uh, or whatever. And then they may have someone coming down there, you know, back about it. So there's so many different working parts that's happening, you know, in education that is frustrating our teachers yeah. and it's, it's causing them to completely like you a manager say, you yeah. know what? I'm not even going to make it through the rest of this year. No. I, you can have all of this back because <laughs> I'm not going to do this. And yeah. I have a term for, for, for people like Amanda, if you're listening, um, I, I love them and I'm trying to save them. Um, but I call them <laughs> educational fugitives. You just <laughs> left. <laughs> they just escaped. I'm on a run. Alcatraz. 
so you know <laughs> so you know we, we i have a term in my book uh, for you so and for good. them like your husband mm-hmm. you know i really cater a lot of my discussion to um, novice teachers, those yeah. that are coming in for the first year, and they're coming in through alternative routes where a lot of times they're not, they, and it's not even something that they're missing out on, to be honest with you, because I want to clear the slate. There are not many schools of education, with even in our colleges, that are actually prepping our teachers and giving them classroom management courses oh, no. to help them to actually understand what it looks like to truly manage a classroom. And so they're not getting that in the undergraduate level. So if you're coming through the alternative route, you're really not missing that component. So no. again, the work that I do is trying to bring, um, you know, this is what I'm trying to to get. Uh, I'm working with colleges and working with, you know, local um, school environments, letting them know that, you know, w- this is a big missing piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And we have educators going in that are not prepared and they're walking out because right. they don't feel like they're prepared. And the principals are just telling them to deal with it or they're bringing in these programs like in Title I schools. If this person... Uh, that you're bringing in this consultant doesn't have experience with working in Title I schools. I don't care how much research-based their program is, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. In that school. No. It's not going to work. <laughs> no. Absolutely it's not going to work. Trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Not going to work. Never going to work. At all. It, so. You know, ugh, I'm getting fired up about this. <laughs> but it's a real thing. It's a it's real thing. Real. And I really hope there's there's some teachers resonating with this too but I think you know from my experience it was uh also in addition to the the turnover of teachers we had a turnover of principals our school had well let's see our school had three different principals in the four years that I was there because our school it was bad our school was probably honestly our school was the one that all the other schools talked about that was like oh you work at blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, Here, here's the thing. Let me say this too. No matter, you know, I've had chairs thrown at me. I've been assaulted by children. I've been, you know, all of the, the nightmares you hear about it's real shit. And it's happened to me. It's not their fault. It's not the kid's fault. And it's so difficult to get past that when you're in a classroom, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, with the same kids over and over and you want to kill them. I mean, not really, but like, you're like, you go out of your mind. And I think for me, also, I started a business while I was teaching and I didn't expect to do that. And it blew up and I wanted to do that full time. So there was a huge shift for me of why I left. But even at the end of 2018, going into 2019, my mental, physical, emotional capacity was just drastically plummeting. Because, and I, and I was talking to a really great instructional coach we had in our district. I can't remember who it was, but she's very well versed in title one and all these things. And she was like, I never recommend teachers stay in a title one, really tough situation like this for more than two years tops Um, or something to that effect. And I was like, well, I've been here for three and a half. And she's like, well, no wonder you're, you know, or, or, you know, at that point I had been teaching in title one for four years. And so across, you know. Arkansas and then, and then Texas. And so I think we're seeing a lot of both sides of the pendulum of administrators not wanting to suspend, but then wanting to, but it's like, there's never even ground. It's always shifting. Like it's always just a mess. And like, we're always just hanging on by a thread. You wonder why teachers look so tired and they're so exhausted. And now if they're teaching at home still with their own children, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine because, and I really physically can't because I don't have children, but um, it's just the, the, the lack of leadership that I saw in my time in education. I, I will say I had maybe two good principles out of the six that I had experience with. And both of them went on to do bigger, better things because they were, you know, tired of being in that situation. And you're right. It was actually pretty disappointing to hear the most, my last, where I was last, our population, like I said, was primarily, like you said, um, black and brown kids. And they on purpose, which I think was a great move. We had had a white principal for a long time. And I think that that's fine. But the one before was not in tune, very like deaf to things. 
Um, and so they intentionally brought an African-American woman in as our principal. And I was like, this is going to be great. Like she, you know, she was so excited and I, and we heard her strategy and we heard her, you know, things that she wanted to make happen and the changes and things like that. And then as time went on, I more and more heard about the money that the school needed, the fact that she needed this job, the fact that, you know, her hands were tied with some things, but also she wasn't advocating for the teachers. And, and what I saw originally as a, as a teacher, you're like, oh my gosh, it's just another bad leader. Like, I'm so sick of this, but I don't think that you're, you're exactly right. They're not trained. You know, the principal before her had never even been an assistant principal. And so she was coming straight from the classroom to like, she was an instructional coach for a couple of years, straight to being a principal of an 800 element, an 800 population um, elementary school that's just kind of falling apart in its title one. And so... I think we just got these leaders that were just not given the support that they needed to lead effectively and then take us with them with like the great ideas that they had and the heart they had behind it. But the the lack of leadership skills and other things and resources, you just can't execute. And so it's like, then we all fall into this. Well, this is how it is. It just kind of sucks and we just have to deal with it kind of thing. I was going to say, you know, and and it's, 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 it's happening uh, literally like, just like that all across America. And, you know, like you, I, before doing my studies and before getting into specific leadership position and just learning about, you know, the intricate details of the different role of one of the things about getting an educational doctorate is that when you go through the program, you learn about all the different roles of leadership and classroom within the school realm. Mm -hmm. So you start learning about these roles. And then, of course, if you are given the opportunity to work in various roles, you start, you begin to see things from different vantage points. Mm -hmm. And so what happens often in Title I schools and schools that are considered at risk, like I said, I've been in, that's where I've been majority, even alternative. I've I've, I've taught and and led in alternative schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, Typically what happens and almost unfortunately, and this is, this is so unfortunately, and it's not the case for all Title I schools, but a lot. They become the dumping grounds for the leaders that can't fare well in other schools, or there's not uh, a space and position for this person. And there's some buy-in somewhere. And so they were like, well, we got to ship them somewhere. And that's why you'll see the excitement. And then before long, that person is like, well, I thought you were really going to be the person, but then now you're just doing the same old stuff. And sometimes it's really because that person just needed a job. You know, they, they're, you know, they might've had the right heart intent to really want it to work, but not have the training and the background and the support um, to actually make it happen. And then the other thing is, I think it's important to educate our teachers as well as our school leaders Mm -hmm. that there are other ways to advocate for educators outside just, you know, doing what they ask. And what I mean by that is it can become bombarding bombarding and overwhelming when you have a staff of 1,500 teachers or a staff of, you know, depending on how big your school is or a staff or 150 teachers and everybody wants some, everybody wants this. It can become very, very overwhelming. Um, however, there are different ways in which you can advocate. You know, there are ways in which you can connect with your community leaders. There are ways, you know, to connect with other people in leadership positions within the district to help get resources. There are ways in which you can provide leadership opportunities for teachers to gain the experience that they need in order to help their, uh, you know, fellow uh, co-workers. Like there's so many different avenues that leaders can take and that teachers can take, which, you know, I talk, I talk uh, extensively about that also, you know, in my book as well, because, you know, my objective is saving the teachers from abandoning the classroom, which ultimately helps our children, yeah. you know, because we need educators in the classroom. If we're not shifting our model, you know, whereas I know that's changing now. And, and speaking of change, and I know we're going to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Our, Everything has actually changed yeah. in, 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 in with COVID. COVID yeah. has changed everything about every 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 field, every work, every facet yeah. of life. And I think that this is the perfect opportunity for educators or those in the educational field to set a different foundation. Mm. Uh, and I think that's why it's important that we're going to talk about some cultural dynamics mm-hmm. in just a few moments. 
Um, this gives us an opportunity. You shared something earlier that being in Title I schools or being in schools where there's a high uh, risk or a high rate of either uh, physical violence or students acting out, disrespect, all of those different things, disregard for rules. You know, I share with educators. I've been in some of the roughest environments. You know, where I taught classrooms full of gang members and, mm -hmm. you know, um, been in schools where there, you know, there was always either fights or disagreements or arguing in the classroom or some type of misbehavior. Mm -hmm. And you said something um, key where you said, you know, it's not their fault because many of them are coming from, you know, different backgrounds um, where, you know, this is happening. However, I always tell educators this, you know, when I was doing my studies. One of the things that interests me is helping educators understand the law because there is there are laws that protect you from violence as well because no edu educator should be in a position where they're getting a chair thrown at them, where they're yes. being pushed around, where they're being assaulted in any measure. I don't know. I don't care if the kid is, if it's a manifestation of a special needs behavior. I don't care what it is. You should yep. never be in that type of position. And I will tell you that I've been face-to-face, -face, females and males with those who were just ready to throw down. Yeah. And but I've never had I've never had an incident where anyone touched me, assaulted me, or anything of that measure. One, because part of my background, I, I share with you the good side. <laughs> There's another side of my upbringing that really challenged and prepared me for being in hostile situations. Mm. And so I let them know that at the end of the day, one, it may be a little bit, I don't even say easier. I'm not even going to use the term easy. It may be a little bit more feasible or because I understand what I'm, what I'm supposed to do in this field. It may be, I, I really don't want to use practical. The term. I don't know. It may be practical. It may be, it's something, another yeah. word I'm looking for. Guys. <laughs> I don't know what that is. But my point is, if I'm in schools with predominantly black and brown children, I'm black, then one, that's already going to break a barrier. Yes. So I'm able to engage at a certain level that if you're not black, you may feel um, intimidated to engage. Mm -hmm, Number mm -hmm. two, my background, even though I'm a doctor now and I had all these great experiences with my grandparents, mm -hmm. there's another side of my experiences that reflect the same things that my children, the students that I'm teaching have, that they are going through, I've gone through. Right, you can so identify. on that experience as well. And then I let them know at the end of the day, there are laws that protect me. So if you swing, I swing back. So I let them know I'm just as crazy as you are. Like, I will flip out. Like, you know, and I tell them, you know, many of them who are into rap music, I like rap music. So I will tell them, like, I, when, during my time, you know, when students, you know, I don't know, you know, different dynamics of the music that they listen to, but they are aware of this artist. And so I'm in classrooms. I've had to quote Tupac. And there you I, go. You know, I'm not a killer, but don't push me. Like, because I will handle what needs to be handled. And I know it sounds really outlandish, no. but I know the law. Yeah. I know the law protects me because there are laws for educators and educational policy written, you know, by legislation yes, that absolutely. protects me when I am assaulted. Right. And, and so I, I think that's yeah. something you're absolutely right. I still probably to this day don't know the full extent of my rights and what protects me and things like that. And I know, you know, you can become what's. CPI certified as far as physically and, th you know, being able to restrain a child, things like that. But also I didn't want to become CPI certified because then I was responsible because I'm the one that's trained, you know? And so that I also already knew I was kind of on my way out, but, and it's something, you know, my, my husband is considering because he has all sped kids, every class, nine periods a day, all sped kids. Um, in the middle school um, department and not are all severe physical things. It's more emotional and uh, things like that. But anyway, um, so let's get into this about students. And I, I wrote this question. I was just kind of jotting things down. I think the way I meant to phrase this question is what, what you're going to hear from teachers, teachers is why are these kids so hard to deal with? That's not the question we need to ask. It's why does it seem like things get out of control so quickly? What's different about this generation that there's a disconnect? Like you said, and, and I ran into this not so much in my last couple of years because I was at that school for four years and the kids really got to know me and they built so much relationship and trust with me. So it was like they knew Miss Smith was cool. She was fine. She's like on your side. 
Um, but early on had lots of moments where I'm a white teacher. Most of my kids are not white. So especially if they were older kids, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, their walls were they were not going to, they, they didn't want to relate with me. They didn't want to listen. They didn't, because they automatically think you can't relate. And you know what? They're probably, they're probably right. So it took a long time to build trust with them, um, especially with the students who were more verbal about the, the issues that they may have had with class. Um, but what are your, your thoughts on this generation of students? Because it is different. I mean, my, my grandparents were teachers. I had aunt and uncles. I'm kind of like you, my whole family feels like educators. So wasn't like this 20, 30 years ago, but what are your thoughts? There are quite a few. Um, I actually uh, have a chapter, chapter six in my book is who's at the center of your class. And basically what I talk about within that chapter is asking educators to look at the dynamics of one, how they structure their classroom, how they facilitate their classroom, even how down to how they decorate their classroom. Um, have you involved the children in any aspects of your facilitation? And the reason why that's so important, I'm just kind of giving like a rough run through for time's sake. But uh, the reason why that's important is because these generations of learners are very hands. Whereas during our time, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, um, and even before, uh, it was common to sit in the classroom and just take the directors from the educator. You may do some group work every now and then, you know, but it was common to sit in the class and, you know, just listen to the educator, you know, uh, teach the lesson or whatever the activities are. But our society is has drastically changed. I mean, there are some kids who feel like, based on the way their teachers are teaching, I don't have to go to that class. I can go to YouTube and get that because we're in a, a society where social media is at the fingertip and they don't feel like they need this person to do this aspect of the learning process. Yeah. Whereas I need you to connect with me and involve me. And so right. that's one of the things that I think is missing is the, the, again, the training of, of course, uh, my uh, model is very progressive. Uh, it's, it's something that, uh, just came out. So, you know, I'm still creating the foundation and the connection with educational leaders and colleges to help them understand, you know, the full aspect of this program is going to really transform how educators really respond in the classroom and help engage with students because they are very, very different. Mm -hmm. And um, another aspect of, of this section, because this chapter is a part of a section where I talk about creating a cooperative classroom that works, we have to identify the fact that sometimes we bring too much of ourselves, of how we were taught and trying to merge it with what the children and how they're, they're, they're learning and their interaction is now. One parent I was speaking with just last week that was, um, I was going through, I was doing a training and the parent shared an example. She said that her uh, child's teacher is white and of course she's black, her son is black. And in the classroom, her, the teacher uh, always asks the child to do such and such. And so the complaint to the parent was, I've asked your child to do this, this, I've given the instructions of what I want them to do. And the parent said, after a while, she realized what the problem was. And she had to tell the teacher, oh, I see what the problem is. He'll do what you want him to do, and it, but it's not in the time frame. That it seems like he's slowful. He's not being obedient and compliant. She said, but the problem is you're asking. She said, at home, I tell him what I want him to do. And I tell him when I want him to do it. <laughs> and so you're, you're actually, there's a, like, there's a, a breakdown in what he's being taught at home or being instructed to do at home versus what's happening in the classroom. You're giving him an option. Right. You're giving him an option. Which like you're, at, she said, no, I tell him. So you mm -hmm. tell him. She was like, and you don't have to do it in a demeaning manner. Yeah. And she, she's like, you know, I understand the cultural breakdown and dynamics and you don't have to do it in a demeaning manner, mm -hmm. but just understand that at home, he's told what to do. Just directly. He's, it's very direct. So rather than asking. And so she said when the teacher did that, then the behavior of that child began to change. So I think yeah. it's important. And I, and I talked to, I talk about it in my book, which is in that same section is your parents are your lucky charm. What I mean by that is the people who are raising these children, parents, uh, whether it's uh, someone who's a guardian, whoever it is, 
over that child's life. Connect with them. Find out what the parameters are at home. And yes, I know that there are times where even the parents feel like they can't do anything with their children. They feel like they're disobedient. There is still a way that, you know, that child is able to live under that roof where they're doing things to make sure that they are in some ways respecting their parents. Like tap into what's happening at home because if the language is different, then you are going to see where, gosh, these children are just inept. They just will not behave. They just won't do anything. Well, it may not necessarily be the children. Yes, we know that there are some that are just not going to obey. Yeah. We get that. But that's a small percentage yes, of the population small. of children that actually want to obey and they want to do it, but you're just not speaking in the language yes. that they understand. So there's the different sides of it. It's really hard. And I mean, that took me a while, especially as a new teacher. It, it, you're like, oh, well, like, why, why is this not working together? Why are we not, you know, meshing on the teacher or the student? Shouldn't you just do it? <laughs> you know, but I mean, I think there were something like 40 languages represented at my school, cultural languages, all of those things. Yeah. A lot. Um, being like the Dallas area is just a, I know my, I know that's why I'm going <laughs> to, that's why I'm doing what I'm going to do. But it, so many cultural barriers. So many. Um, I had um, some students who were from, I believe, a Middle Eastern region. I don't remember what country exactly. But in some of those cultures, women are not held in respected positions of authority. And so direction or instructions from a woman was very foreign to them. Their own mothers will not tell them a single thing. And so it was one of those, especially as they're younger, because then there's the language barrier. There's just cognitively, they don't have everything together. And so, man, it's frustrating. It's, but it, I mean, it you work on it. And if you do have the support you need, or I mean, there are so many resources that you can, like your book, you know, like you can do so much research to, I, I will say we did have strong ELL programs and we have, I mean, we, we even had like Arabic translators, multiple different types of translators. Um, and then like on the Spanish side of things, I know Spanish, I speak Spanish. And so that always helped <laughs> if I had kids who spoke Spanish, but, um, so let's talk really quick as we kind of wrap up, wrap um, let's just kind of skip down leading and being a leader in whatever industry, whether you're a teacher or a business owner or a mother, whatever it looks like, but let's maybe specifically hone in on leading in our, our position of authority as a business owner. Um, you've, you've made this whole shift to now you saw all these needs. You did the work to figure it out and communicate it effectively. And of course, you have all of these things now that people can tap into that's truly changing teachers' lives, administrators' lives, and ultimately kids' lives. But leading with diversity and inclusion and how I think one thing that we've seen, and you and I talked about this briefly, but and kind of like we've touched on today, as a non-woman of color, you know, we don't want people who have the intention, the, the positive intention behind it of they want to acknowledge and, and change things and lead well and make sure that like everyone actually is included and things are diverse. How can we nav- navigate that honestly as non-women of color? I think that's, um, it's actually the perfect question for me. <laughs> the reason why I say that is because a lot of the women um, educators that I have been training since the release of Culture Focused Teaching have been white women, really, women who are non-black. And it, of course, increased drastically over the summer months of, or the end of school year last year, going into the summer months of 2020, because of everything that was happening nationally, mm-hmm. you know, with the murders of Abrera and uh, Breonna Taylor and George um, Floyd, and, you know, just so many, you know, things that happened. So, mm-hmm. you know, teachers were like, I, I just... I just, I, I don't know. Like, I, I just need to be, you know, how do I navigate this? And so uh, one of the things that I do, and it's not, I'll be honest, you know, we're, we're, we, we create systems and books to sell them. But besides selling them, I want to make sure that you have information that's going to be useful. Yeah. So I'm always going to defer back to my book because yeah. the information that I'm sharing is in there. 
Also, and, you spent a lot of time doing it. And it's right. Like, so. <laughs> and um, in chapter four of my book, uh, Overcoming the Teacher Fear Factor, I did a real, I literally did trainings last year, about three or four trainings on that chapter alone because of that question that you asked. And it becomes a fear as a woman, um, not a color, who, you know, working in an area where, let's say you are your clients or your students, your families are predominantly, you know, black and brown. And what I like to share is the first thing we got to do is pull the mirror up and we got to identify our own biases. There's absolutely no way, I don't care how much information on DI that I give you. Mm-hmm. If we don't deal with our own biases, whether it's an aspect of our upbringing, yes. whether it's something we've adopted through, you know, our interaction with people from other cultures, whatever that bias is, we first got to deal with that. So I literally take them through an activity where, you know, I ask questions like, you know, what is your uh, thought, your first thought that comes to mind? Be very, very honest. It's like very deep. I think it comes from my life coaching background. So, you know, and, and the psychology aspect of, of, of my background. So it's like, you know, let's dig deep and let's really look at what comes to mind when a student walks into your class, you know, with pants sagging, a T-shirt that may have you know, uh, paraphernalia that you don't understand. It could be mm-hmm. some, from a rap artist or, or from their culture. Like, what's your what's your first thought with a student coming like that in your class? And, you know, just I've had some people share, you know, I thought this, you know, they share, like, I thought he was going to be a troublemaker. I thought that, you know, he was a gangster. I thought that, you know, he was going to, you know, be a person that gave me a hard time. And, you know, some of them had stories where, you know, that might might have been the case sure. or it may have been the total opposite. Total opposite. Where, oh, where yeah. it's been one of their best students, you know, oh, yeah. in class because, but they judge again and they admit it like some of this was based on media I was representation. Say. Yep. Um, some of it was based on conversations around the dinner table with their yep. family. How you were brought up. Of that nature. So you have to be honest with yourself and deal with your own biases, whether they were inherited or whether you adopted them on your own. So it's like really digging deep because we've got to clean all of that out first before you help. Because again, if you go in without that, then you're going to have that stench of white saviorism on you, um, hate, you know, virtue baiting, um, performative allyship. You're going to have all of that on you if you don't deal with what's really happening on the inside that's causing you to view a particular culture a certain way. If you are having a Hispanic a student walk into your class. You know, what is your mindset about that student? Mm-hmm. You know, you begin to think, oh, they live this way or this must, or their parents don't speak English or things right. of that. And like, what is your mindset? So we have to really dig deep, you know, and look into those areas. And don't get me wrong. If you're listening to this podcast, her specific question is about non-Black um, educators or uh, non-Black uh, people in this. But this happens with people within the same race as well. That's just a, a pin there, like a caveat, because there are subcultures within the same culture. So just so nobody takes it as that, oh, well, Black yeah. people do the same thing. They do. Yes, absolutely. But the question is for... right. Right. Non non black you know educators or non black leaders mm-hmm. um, in the diversity and inclusion um, atmosphere. So yeah. first, identify your own bias. Once we do that, then let's begin to think of ways um, in which you can bring your experience um, to find common ground. You may not have the same background experience as the children or the families or the clients that you are serving, but there's a place to call that we call middle ground. I like to call it the watering hole, and the reason why I call it <laughs> Warren Hole is I'm although my background is in English, I'm such a science junkie. Really? Um, I love science and history. I minored in history. I just didn't tell my school leaders that because I didn't want them to <laughs> Don't pull me um, in. <laughs> so I kept that secret. But I, I call it the Warren Hole. Um if you know anything about um, you know, the the Jurassic Age, the, the mm-hmm. age of the dinosaurs, um, all of them had their respect. You had the herbivores, the carnivores, those, you know, that just stayed distant from each other. They had their own segment where, you know, there were no fighting and different things because they stayed in this, you know, specific areas. Now, if they were caught roaming outside of those areas and you had those carnivores, you know, that were around, then they were at risk of being attacked or eaten or whatever. And so they taught their young ones the same way. The only place where there was no fighting, where there was a commonality was the watering hole. Mm. And so at the watering hole is where I like to say that we need to meet 
when you are from a different background, from a different culture. It's where, you know, you may not believe in the organization Black Lives Matter. That may be something that you cannot identify with. You, you may not understand what that's all about. But what we can come to the agreement on is that you believe everyone should be treated fairly in the custody of police. You, sh- mm-hmm. you believe that, you know, you, again, because there's a difference. There's, it's, it's wild, but there is a difference between the organization of Black Lives Matter and the statement that Black Lives Matter. And there are people who subscribe to and support the organization and those that don't, but believe that Black Lives do matter and we must speak and advocate on that behalf. So there's a common ground here at the Warren Hole where we don't have to fight about the differences, but we can now look at what those commonalities are. So um, that's one thing, looking at what we can uh, unify together and be open to learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Give your students an opportunity to share about their culture. And even if it's not reflective of the entirety of that culture, for example, it's Black History Month right now while we're recording the podcast, right? And so uh, I think for educators, this is the prime opportunity, um, not that you should only do it in February, but this is an opportunity to help your students display their voice as it relates to Black history, not just from an international and national perspective, but there are local heroes that they are aware of. Their parents are people who have mobilized and, and made changes in society. Bring those parents in, bring those people in to talk about that culture. So connect with the families within your community and those who understand the language of that culture. And to me, the last thing I want to give you is the most important that you can. Because if you are white or if you're non-black and you live and have access to privilege, then use that privilege to amplify black and brown voices. Give the mic, open the door, usher them to the table. Give them a seat. (laughs) Give them a seat. Like, like those are things that's the most important thing you can do, because guess what? I don't care how much as a white person you can learn the history of the civilization of every black and brown person or someone from another culture. You will not be able to share uh, the conviction of that culture because you don't have the lived experience. So amplifying the mic, giving them um, the seat and giving, putting them at the table and opening the door is the best thing that you can actually do to advocate for that culture is give them the opportunity to advocate for themselves. If we uh, do just a brief little uh, segment of history, that is what made um, Frederick Douglass the figure that he is in African-American history because the work with the abolitionists who were white gave him the mic. They gave him the mic to talk about the brutality of slavery, which was the flashpoint to start this movement of uh, ceasing slavery in the United States. It was the flashpoint that started because they had now a visual picture from someone who actually went through this process. Now they can, they've been enlightened. Yeah. So it is the amplification and giving that. And that's how, again, you, you know, as someone who is not black can, again, be an advocate and not during times of performance, but also, you know, making sure that that's in action. Absolutely. And just to kind of tag onto this about students, the times that I was enlightened the most was when I just asked them questions. And especially when it was, you know, a, a cultural custom thing. And I, I can ask, hey, do you mind me asking what, what are you, you know, what is this holiday? Or why is it that you have to wear this special thing? I would love to learn. And Teachers feel like we can't really say anything sometimes because we're going to offend somebody or because a kid's going to flip out. And I mean, let's be honest, I've definitely been called racist a million times by kids. And I think sometimes I think, you know, they, especially younger kids, they're not thinking about it and they're not necessarily using it in the right way. But, you know, it's not, I've, I never had a bad time where I asked them a question and they're, they're just happy to share. You know, um, and I think teachers it, that can go a long way because also it care it shows that like care <laughs> and that you have interest in them and that you want to meet them at the watering hall or build that bridge with them and it's just extending one of those um, relationship building pieces. So absolutely, and that and that's essentially what my work is all about: relationship building. Yeah, because you have to meet them where they are and show them that you care. It's it's so old it's it's cliche but it's so real you know our students are they live in this they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care 
Absolutely. They absolutely, everything else is just null and void. And building that relationship is a prime, genuinely building that relationship, not, oh, I just need to get through this semester. Not just to actually, right? Not, yeah. Genuinely building that relationship because you will find that you will learn so much. And and having, you know, some conversations may not be appropriate for the classroom sure. for all age, age levels, but, um, you know, there are times where you can speak with someone you know, like myself, you know, if I were in your school or if there was someone in the neighborhood, in the community or our family member that you can sit down and, and, and talk to, like, why is this child so enamored with the gang life and, the, and, and you know, sure. um, drugs and different things? And then they can explain to you the history of the effects of, you know, the war on drugs and the havoc that it wreaked on the black community and different things of that nature and how that's something that we're still trying to redeem from. Because, you know, uh, it, it wasn't that we had planes and trains and automobiles to bring drugs into the United States. It's just a, still a matter of systemic practices of, you know, bringing the people down. And so, like, helping them to understand what that's really all about, you know, so that you can have that clarity. And, like, you know, I know that's what, you know, you you know talk to that kid. I know that's what you are used to either seeing or experiencing. But, you know, I just really believe that. You can utilize those skills. Let's let's talk about how some of those skills can be utilized in this um, career or in this subject, yeah. like really like changing the trajectory without downplaying, you know, what they're interested in, because yes. it may not be something positive, but you can shift it without making them feel like, well, if, you know, you're just not good with that. That's or not something bad. Talk about. Even yeah. though we know it's not good, you just want to redirect, like, let's yes. think about using that skill here. Like, what do you think about this? You know, talk to me about, let's do a research report on it. Like, really redirect it right. and then help them. If the academic levels are not there, really helping them and not demeaning a student for the experiences that they bring, because at the end of the day, that's their truth. That's yeah. their experience. Empowering them rather than just shutting it down. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Oh my gosh. Well, we could talk forever and every school in America needs your help. <laughs> every single one of them. Um, Dr. D, tell us where we can connect with you online. Also, you know, tell us the title of your book again, one more time. Absolutely. The title of my book is Culture Focused Teaching, The Simple System to Escape Classroom Management Disaster and Fall in Love with Teaching Again. Um, I truly desire to keep our educators in the classroom, but I want them healthy and whole while they are in the classroom. And so my book definitely helps them to, you know, structure uh, strategies for their personal life as well as for the classroom uh, to ensure that they are effective in um, uh, helping our students learn from an academic and uh, behavioral perspective. You can find out more information about me, the book, and all the other resources that I can provide as it relates to professional development training uh, for education educators and educational leaders at www dot culture teaching.com you can find out more about some of the other uh, training modules that i do for community leaders at www.drdunlimited.com that's d-r-d-e-e unlimited.com i'm also on social media i am on facebook instagram and twitter at dr d unlimited again that's d-r-d-e-e Unlimited. And I also have a YouTube page at Dr. D Unlimited. And I think that covers everything. I'm also on LinkedIn, but I am DBL Williams on LinkedIn. That's my name. I have my full name on LinkedIn, DBL Williams. Um, and for those of you who are out there on TikTok, I am now on TikTok. Oh my gosh. At okay. Dr. D Unlimited. I just joined um, <laughs> this week. I said, you know, I really felt strongly led to work. I'm seeing educators do some amazing things on TikTok. Oh, yeah. You know what? I'm going to join the party. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. So you're going to crush it. Dr. D Unlimited as well. <laughs> oh, it's going to be so good. I can't wait. Oh, my gosh. You're going to have to repost all of that to Instagram, too, because Absolutely. we're all going to want to see it. Dr. D, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your expertise and your heart and what you're doing. Um, it is truly the Lord's work. Um, and we, we appreciate you. You guys go love on her, grab her book. If you know a teacher, please just buy the book and send it to that teacher. Give it to them. Not, not even for teacher appreciation, just give it to them. <laughs> and, uh, thank you guys for listening to this episode, rate, review, subscribe, all the things, and we will see you next time. We are supported by BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp.com is online secure counseling services that you can take advantage of right from their handy dandy app. I've been using BetterHelp for the last several months. 
I went on there. I took a, a quick quiz about who I am and my personality. They matched me to the best fit counselor for me. And then we got started. You can message to your counselor in the app portal. You can journal. They can give you activities and kind of homework or assignments so that you can work through um, the things that you are dealing with. And when you use code GIRLGANG, you can get 10% off. So betterhelp.com slash GIRLGANG for more information. You guys, I told you it was good. I told you this was good. <laughs> Dr. D is incredible. Um, go check out her book by Dr. D. Williams. Dr. D. Bell Williams, excuse me, culture-focused teaching. Her book is available on Amazon or anywhere you buy books. It is a good, quick read. And when you're done, pay it forward and buy a copy or share your copy with another teacher. Okay? Help a girl or guy out. So excited. This is going to be so amazing. So tomorrow, this is your last chance to get your tickets for the Refresh and Flow Summit, bit.ly forward slash Refresh Flow. Get your virtual summit tickets now. You don't have to be in Dallas to join. Yes, I know we're Dallas Girl Gang, but we are a worldwide Girl Gang now. And we are so excited to see you have some dance parties, learn about how to manage our stress, but also propel our business forward with purpose and without killing ourselves. So let's dig in. Grab your ticket again, bit.ly forward slash refresh flow. Let's get it.